Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fully Schooled. I'm your host, Matthew Frost. In today's episode, we've got another exciting lineup of guests. Later in the episode, we welcome Dean Jones to Fully Scored to unpack his seminal work, Glorifico Eternum. Following Dean, we have a new inhabitant on Arid Island, Bethany Williams. We also have a brand new excerpt for Sparsely Scored, so stay tuned to find out if you can guess it straight away. But firstly, it's my pleasure to introduce David Wright. David is part of the music editorial team, but also has had an exciting career as a military musician previously. Let's find out more. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Fully Scored, David. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak with you. First of all, congratulations to you on your recently uh, appointed role at Music Editorial as part of the team. When did you start working for the department? So I just uh, started in January, Matthew, so I'm very much uh, in the early days of it. So just completed six months at it and uh, really enjoying the role. And it was a great opportunity and, you know, really grateful to have got onto the team. And how do you feel that you're settling into the role? Yeah, so far so good. Uh, there's obviously quite a lot to learn. I come from a you know, military music career into this, so a lot of performance and looking at music, but not from that editorial perspective. Uh, so really enjoyed uh, the process so far and a really good team, really looking after me. So it's all good. Thank you. Fantastic. So you mentioned your background there, and we'll certainly come and talk about that in a little bit. But how did you go from that career in military music? Uh, what enticed you to then start working in editorial? Well, I, the idea was to do something with in music. Still, I, I've you know I've been very privileged to be involved in it for a long time, and uh, it was uh, those those opportunities are, are quite limited, if I'm honest. Uh, so it was just a right place, right time thing that that opening came up within the department, and being a long uh, lifelong Salvationist, having the opportunity to kind of put something back. Uh, into the Salvation Army it was it was a great opportunity. So that's how I ended up applying and getting into the role. Fantastic stuff. And I'm sure that many listeners will be interested to know what goes on in the department. Uh, you know, we, we often see the final product, the music on our stands, but the process isn't as quick or as easy, I'm sure, as um, some might think. So I'd like to know what some of your responsibilities are within the department. Okay, so as a department, the three editors who actually are working on the music, we all look at all the music, so all the brass and vocal journals, we will all read those in turn, and obviously looking for any errors in any way, inconsistencies within the parts or harmonic errors, uh, going through that process, trying to identify that, checking the source material against which might have been arranged. And also we all have our little areas where we're, responsible for project managing a journal and I'm on the Unity Series journal so I will just project manage that and have the kind of overall process be in control of that as it moves through from receiving those manuscripts uh, to the final printing of those for SPNS. So let's talk a little bit about your career before editorial shall we? Uh, as you mentioned you had a career in the British Army um, for 30 years and I believe you finished off as regimental sergeant major of the seven bands of the household division. Can you tell us a little bit about that role that you finished off with? 
Yeah, well, it was a kind of aspiration for a long time to get that job. Um, it's based in London. As you say, you have oversight of seven bands, so the five foot guards bands that are based doing ceremonial, the band of the Household Cavalry, uh, who obviously do a mounted season as well as dismounted engagements. And we have a full-time string orchestra in the army based over in Woolwich, the Countess of Wessex's String Orchestra, bit of a mouthful, uh, who have full-time string players and so you have oversight of those so I would advise we have a commanding officer who runs those units um, they have all obviously their local chain of command but we have the oversight across all of them and really in terms of making sure that all policies and procedures are followed but also having um, a big stake in planning the ceremonial events that those units will be involved in as they go through particularly the mass bands events so a really exciting role getting to do loads of kind of unique ceremonial occasions. I mean, I joined the army to do ceremonial and I've been lucky to stay in that kind of area apart from one year for my entire career. So to be able to kind of shape and influence those at the latter end was uh, really exciting. A really busy role, but a really satisfying role, uh, particularly when you see those bands out uh, doing those events and doing them so well. It seems like there's been a lot of ceremonial occasions in the last few years, but I guess one of the biggest would have been the Queen's funeral. I believe you were quite heavily involved in the way that that ceremonial event took place. What was your role in that? Well, I was actually almost out of the door on my military career. I'd had actually, I'd just had my exit interview with the commanding officer that day uh, that uh, we got the news that Her Majesty had passed. Um, so yes, it was. I, he did ask me if I would just hang around a little bit longer to see that through. So as you sit in that role, you will you will work on the the plan as uh, Operation London Bridge, as it was called, have an awareness of what should be going on. Obviously, a, a massive ceremonial event, uh, not only for music but across all three services of the armed forces. So it, it's part of my job is to know that plan and know what should happen. So obviously, when the bridge fell, as we call it. Uh, then it, it kind of made sense that I hang around a little longer. I mean, on a personal level, it's fantastic to be involved, but be able to use some of that knowledge to uh, make that event happen. So I worked with my commanding officer. He had the overview of all the military music on the event, so it was our job to check that everything was in order through that rehearsal phase and make sure that everything's delivered. And it's not just about the big funeral procession that you will have seen at the end of it. There's various events that go through from proclamations, uh, you know, motions of condolence from in Parliament, things like that. They all have elements of musical support. And it's our job to make sure that everybody knows what they should be doing and that they're ready to go and do those events as we would wish. So, so it was a really busy period, uh, some 11 days from, from her passing to the actual final parade. It's probably the busiest 11 days I've had in my whole career, but it was, yeah, it's really interesting. So we travelled around, we went and saw the Marines down in Collingwood rehearsing, we went and saw the RAF up in uh, RAF Henlow rehearsing their elements, and obviously the London bands rehearsing their elements. The London procession involved quite big bands, we had a duplication of bands, so we had uh, 80 strong foot guards bands in two parts of the procession, then we had bands from outside London and Marines and RAF, a similar sized bands. So seven procession groups, all with very large groupings of musicians uh, with contingents marching there. And a really long procession, it might not come across on the television, but the start of the procession, if you know London, was at the uh, 
start of the Mal where it joins Horse Guards approach and the end of it was obviously down Victoria Street beyond Westminster Abbey and there were formations going through that whole route and uh, and they all ended up uh, amalgamating at Wellington Arch uh, where the mass bands some 600 musicians all playing the national anthem at once but yes it was really fascinating really really good to see it. I, I'm quite lucky there's so many people who've worked on that plan over many many years so it's a real privilege to be able to kind of be involved when it actually happens so you kind of stand on the shoulders of those who've developed and refined that plan yeah and then we got to uh, put it into action as a, as a final kind of tribute and farewell to her majesty so i guess you sort of explained a little bit at the end there i was going to ask how you go about starting to coordinate that but actually um is a lot of the work pre-planned and then you have to put it together yeah certainly that that was it's very different i believe to what they've just done with the coronation where there was no real plan so that's a very different animal this yeah there was a planning due to the scale nature of the event and it, the military is just one element of it, as I'm sure you appreciate. For instance, the service in the Abbey with that many heads of states as a security operation and logistical operation is, is huge. So these things are very much planned out, you know, from being able to have the crowds managed within London. There's so many elements and so many uh, agencies, government and, and outside involved in that, that there's a lot of pre-planning goes on, even down to the, the music is all pre-selected. The roots and how those processions are formed up is all pre-selected. It all has some meaning uh, for Her Majesty and her reign, so there will be a reason for all of it. Uh, but yeah, it's all written down. You just have to make it happen, uh, which sounds easy, but it's not necessarily so. So I guess what the public see on the day is really just the tip of the iceberg. What was it like taking part in the occasion on the day after knowing all the planning and everything that's gone on behind the scenes? Well, it's quite surreal in a way. There's a, you know, because that's the only time you get that atmosphere of people. I mean, London was obviously extremely full of people on that route. and uh, But I wouldn't say you're nervous. I always think there's an element of nerves, but you certainly all the planning and preparation that's gone into it. And certainly faith in those, you know, there's so many good people in, that, in, in the military bands who you, you know will deliver that product um, so it's just making sure that they're in the mindset to do that um, but yeah absolute privilege and something really unique obviously occasion to be involved in and that's something unique I think to military music is those kinds of occasions you get involved in not just then but but throughout uh, the kind of year there's regular events and also special events so yeah unique real, real special moments and memories that obviously stay with you for life. Absolutely, a real slice of history there. So as well as your role in the Queen's funeral, you also, I believe, integral in part of putting together the Platinum Jubilee. How was that different, organising and being part of that from the funeral? Another kind of unique occasion in this country and one which we may not ever see again, obviously. For the bands, they were involved in the concert on the Sunday. The army provided a 75-piece orchestra, which at the time... The army had never put out an, an orchestra of that size. So my role in that was to basically find the players, uh, which were from all over the army, not just from bands within London, bands all over, and reserve musicians. Anybody basically who was a good first string player was on that orchestra. So my job was really a band fixer for that event. And obviously that's a very commercial event, working with a lot of top artists. Um, 
so then it's about having the correct rehearsal strategy for that we put that orchestra together for you know some specific days of rehearsal in the build-up to get them playing because these are players who aren't playing together on a daily basis um, it's more of a kind of ad hoc thing so it's putting in those rehearsals getting all those people into London and having a program building up to that and again for us uh, it's a, there was a lot more of click tracks and that kind of commercial activity which we don't you know military musicians don't get involved in normally so it's dealing with all of that a lot of different aspects to it you know dealing with light sound stage designers all these various departments that come together that you need to input into as well as the logistics of you know getting the equipment onto the stage doing those rehearsals and all that so really fascinating and really good to be involved with but also quite high pressure you know a live bbc event working with you know some really top artists so you really got to be on your money musically but my job is to make sure they're in again in that frame of mind that we supported them they're fed they're watered they know what they're doing they're all relaxed they're in a good frame of mind to perform on that kind of event so yeah really really interesting really really good event and again i'm biased but i think we did a good job and working with some of those top commercial artists there do you ever have to put up any real divas to work with uh <laughs> i would say it's quite interesting uh seeing those we did a a kind of full rehearsal where some of the divas came in and some of them didn't uh but some have very large entourages shall we say uh, probably the most interesting character we saw and i'm not saying it's a diva was hans zimmer who we performed uh some of his music uh, and that was really interesting he's a real character but you know a real what a name to say you've worked with uh, Hans Zimmer and he had some of his band came and, and, and played alongside the orchestra as well so yeah um, yeah some of the you know anybody who has two two grand pianos on stage you can say that's quite a thing as Alicia Keys did but not a diva at all might I say uh, and uh, you know so yeah you you see quite a lot of interesting things shall we say so moving back a little bit further into history, a little bit earlier in your career, before being a regimental sergeant major, I believe you were in the Coldstream Guards. What were some of your daily routines and responsibilities as part of the band? Okay, so my, you know, when you first joined the band, your your focus is, you know, as as with any role, is understanding what you need to do, the things you need to work on, and understand. Uh, I mean, my first band sergeant major was Kevin Coates, who you will know very well. And, you know, he will, you know, he teaches you and guides you through mentors and that to, to learn the role. And it's very much about your musical development and making sure you're up to the musical demands of the job. And then as you move through your career, you'll be given various administrative responsibilities. The band, military bands are quite self-sufficient. So there's all, all those roles of running a band will fall to the musicians within it, whether it's running libraries, the procurement of instruments, all that thing, as well as the, the management. So you can kind of work your way up. I was privileged to be the Bansart Major myself, at which point you're the kind of daily man, line manager for those 45 people. It's your job to look after them, you know, do their diary management, uh, organise the engagements they're taking part in, you know, all, all that good planning and preparation and working with the director of music, who's the ultimate manager and responsible for outputs. So he's got the real musical and strategic kind of level stuff and then you're the you're the person working with him to make sure that that stuff happens at, at what i call the ground level you know where the tire hits the road that the people are you know looked after they're getting what they need 
but also he's getting what he needs in terms of rehearsals and time with the band. Fantastic, a really fascinating insight there into, I guess, something quite different for a lot of people that uh, won't see you sort of behind that curtain of how everything works. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a lifelong salvationist. I'm interested to know how that journey uh, began. Did you start learning to play in the Salvation Army? And then how did that progress to you wanting to join and have a military career, if that is what you wanted? Uh, so, so yeah, I was brought up in the Salvation Army. My dad initially taught me to play. He's, he's a trombone player. And, you know, one of my guilty secrets is that I wanted to be a trombonist myself. But uh, he was the bandmaster of a local Salvation Army uh, call we were at, at Mashbury. Uh, some of your listeners might have heard of that call. And so we were quite a small band, and he didn't need trombone players. He needed cornet players. So I learnt the cornet and stuck on the cornet there. So, yeah, he, he taught me the cornet. Um, me and my siblings, we were taught piano. My mother was a pianist, but she wanted to get us proper lessons, so we all had uh, private tuition on piano. So it was a it was a busy household growing up, always full of music. You know, we also had our shifts for practicing the piano in the hallway, and then there'd always be a, a brass instrument. Uh, we all, all three of us were cornet players as well, so it's always music around that. And then in my late teens, um, I'd always been encouraged that it was a hobby. Uh, Music was a hobby, something to enjoy, but wasn't necessarily something you could do in a career unless you were an absolute genius. And that wasn't really what I felt I was. But then some people started coming into the military that I knew. There was people from my local uh, Salvation Army youth band who'd made that transition. And so I thought, well, I'm going to give this a go. I, I loved my music and I thought if there's a chance I can... Uh, do that and obviously there were salvationists associated with military bands always have been there's quite a relatively high percentage that have that background and I think that comes from the excellent grounding you can get in the Salvation Army in music uh, not just in terms of performance but you know if you're taught the theory and the background if you've got good teachers which you know there are tons of in the Salvation Army I got trumpet lessons with Clarence Sadu who you know who really shaped me and helped me prepare for that audition. I'd not done any auditions before. I'd not even done any grades on cornet. I'd done them through the piano in the private system, but never done them on cornet. So he's the one who, you know, really got to thank for preparing me for that audition. And then, yeah, I passed that, fortunately, and that's, once I was in, I kind of made the most of it, shall we say. So I'd be interested to know, was it easy to be open about your faith as a Christian in a military context? I would say not always. Certainly, uh, even when I joined, and the service has evolved a lot, obviously, in those last 30 years, but there was still quite a heavy drinking culture, certainly when you joined the army, and when when you're the one not doing that, certainly in basic training where there weren't any other salvationists around. I would say when I got to the band, it was relatively easy. There were already salvationists serving in that band, and that was kind of understood. But it's not always easy to make that stand when you're when you're on your own. I think it's an organisation, it's more accepting of diversity than it would have been at that time. Um, and so maybe the things that were acceptable 30 years ago wouldn't be accepted now in terms of that. I think hopefully there is a better culture for those within it. But yeah, it's not always easy to stand up or even to say, actually, that's that's wrong or I disagree with that. So it, and you have to make your stand on that early. That's what That's the way I approached it, you know, just kind of hold the line and explain to people why if they don't want to know that's fine but 
just explain why these things are important, why it is you don't drink, how it relates to my faith uh, and beliefs. And, and uh, yeah, so not always easy, but um, like I say, once you got to the band within the kind of music world, there seemed to be far more salvationists or those, even if they weren't serving salvationists, those who'd come from that background that fully understood what it was more about. It's really interesting to hear that. So you're currently the deputy bandmaster at Chelmsford Corps, where you attend. How do you use your skills that you acquired in your military career and now the editorial career and apply them and use them in that leadership context? Well, for me, uh, the great thing about Salvation Army bands that's different to kind of professional music making is you, you accept everyone of all standards. And all, all I try and apply is I try and kind of get people on a musical journey I, I don't care how good you are, but as long as you're trying to make it better. So I'm trying to, you know, for me, I analyse where you're going to get the most improvement out of a band. You know, where can you get the maximum gain, shall we say, for the for the least work or least effort? You know, we're not looking as Chelsea Band to play in Carnegie Hall. That's not our mission. Um, our mission is to be in our local community and, and, and to be doing that outreach there. Now, clearly, I want it to be high-quality music, uh, but you have to accept that it isn't the LSO, uh, but you just want everyone to do their best. But also you want them to enjoy it in the professional environment. You don't have to necessarily have them to enjoy it. You just need the product to be right, although you would always aspire to that. It's not always possible, certainly within the military. There's a lot of compromises that come in. But in that environment, you're much more free. And I want everyone to enjoy making music. Uh, I want them to understand the music and why we're playing it. Um, which is, you know, where the kind of editorial and understanding the background of music, the motivation maybe for it being written, certainly the material, source material that they're playing, you want them to understand all that. So I think it's hard in bands to sometimes translate that message because we have no lyrics directly. But we have a great team at Chelmsford um, who will support that through the multimedia. We found that really useful for the display, just simple stuff of displaying lyrics and trying to make that message clear that the band portrays words of wisdom indeed thank you david <laughs> so that brings us on to something a little bit less serious perhaps the quirky quickfire questions so as usual i've got some questions here that you might have heard in other episodes but also some that i hope will be unique so we'll start off with who is your favorite salvation army composer i'd probably say leslie condon and to narrow in even further, have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece? Well, I probably would say, out of all of the Call of the Righteous, it's the, it was the first Leslie Condor piece I played. Now, if you had to live one day in a member of the royal family's shoes, who would you choose? <laughs> oh, well, that's one of the some I definitely wouldn't want to be in. Um, but we won't talk about that too much. I'd probably go for the king just to see what it was like, to be honest. It would be uh, fascinating, wouldn't it, to, to be, on, be in these shoes for a day? Absolutely. Waffle or pancakes? I'd go pancakes. Ooh, great stuff. Now, if you invented a time machine, but it could only take you on one journey into the past... What era or even specific date would you visit? I'd probably like to, you know, experience maybe Victor and Europe Day or something like that. So something where the world had gone some, through something really major traumatic time, but was just on the verge of emerging to see what that 
atmosphere and what it was like to experience those kind of times. Nice. Have you got a favourite book of the Bible? I'd probably say the Acts of the Apostle. Uh, you know, it's the formation of the church and what they go out and, and the doing. I, I love the the doing bit. You know, we're all called to kind of do mission or do things in the name of Christ. And it's that seeing them go out kind of into the world, whether that's the immediate world and, you know, that, that part of the Bible, I think would be my favourite. Where's somewhere in the world that you've never been to, but you'd love to visit? Um, I'd, I'd love to go to New Zealand. Uh, everything I say, it looks like a beautiful country. I've, I've made it to Australia a couple of times. Uh, that's through, through, through work, through the army paying me to get there. Uh, but yeah, never made New Zealand. I'd love to, I'd love to visit New Zealand. Uh, who do you think would win in a boxing match, Barack Obama or Tony Blair? <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd probably want Barack Obama to win. Um, I think he's got a bit more stature, probably a better reach. You've heard it there first. Uh, what is your favourite scent of a candle? Oh, um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, well, we have um, we're kind of Disney fans in our household, so I'd probably go like we have these scents like Main Street Bakery, which is very kind of sweet confectionery that kind of makes you think you're in Disneyland. So I'd, I'd go go that scent, I think. Excellent. And finally, what is the funkiest hat you've ever worn? That's interesting. Well, probably you probably would say the bearskin uh, cap is probably the you know most unusual hat. I, I do like a baseball cap. Um, I'm a, a bit of a kind of cricket fan, so I have Essex and England caps. But the funkiest, you probably would say that. That's the most unique and strange piece of headwear that I had to wear for a very long time. Excellent stuff. So that takes us on to Band Manager. Now, for listeners that don't know what Band Manager is, uh, each guest is able to choose two people that they would like to nominate for this Band Manager 2023 Fantasy Bands. The players can be chosen simply because they're amazing players or amazing salvationists, or can be more personal that they've impacted our guests' lives. So, David, who would your two picks be for the fully scored Fantasy Band 2023, and why? I gone for people who are actually both in the culture and guards band you know they both left by the time i joined sadly i didn't get to serve alongside them their reputations both as christians and musicians were still kind of impacting the band they were still talked about um sometimes in that kind of atmosphere there's uh people find fault or very easy to criticize people who've been in the band you know fine but both these two people no one would ever have a bad word to say about them um, and i'm very much like you, you set your standard and you try to be good Christians and be good uh, musicians as well. But it's quite unusual, shall I say, that people have both those aspects and, and still talked about after they've maybe departed the organisation. So on percussion, I'm going to put Steve Yeldon. I've, I've worked with a, a few uh, Salvationist percussionists, but he would be my pick. And like I say, he, he had the reputation that he could play anything on percussion. And somebody who's a current staff bandsman and has association with uh Chelmsford also uh, is Ian Parkhouse I'm going to put Ian Parkhouse on baritone please who was a fine euphonium player uh, in the band of the culture and guards and like I say still had you know still talked about probably now uh, and he, I think he did nine years service I think Steve Yeldon was probably near his 22 uh, uh, yeah but he's one of those you stand on the shoulders of these people and you try and emulate what they've done so I'm going to go for Ian Parkhouse, please, on Baritone. 
Two fantastic choices there, David. Thank you so much, and thank you for giving up your time to join us. I'm Fully Schooled. We'll hear you shortly in Band Mastermind. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Thank you, David, for your time and sharing those few insights into your life, faith and work. Fascinating stuff indeed. And, as usual, two excellent additions to the fully scored Fantasy Band for Band Manager 2023. For those that follow us on social media, you'll have seen that we were opening up some of the seats in the band for nominations from our listeners. Most recently, we opened up the second baritone seat, and we had lots of great nominations for people to take the seat, including Simon Burkett, Reg Price, Carl Rosenquist, Stuart Lees, and even Dan Bate. However, it was Howard Bowes who takes the seat having received the most nominations. The next seat we'll be opening up to listeners' votes is Euphonium 2. We'll put the post up soon on the Fully Scored Facebook page, so comment away with your nominations there. Now it's time to introduce a new face to the podcast. That is Salvationist composer Dean Jones, as he unpacks Glorifico Eternum. Well, Dean, thank you so much for joining us on Fully Scored uh, to have a little look at your piece Glorifico Eternum. So I've got a few questions before we look at the score, just to understand the piece and the context. Now, I believe you said uh, earlier that it was 20 years exactly since this piece uh, was what well, started to be written. What was the initial inspiration behind writing that piece 20 years ago? Well, the initial idea really came about through the influence of Peter Graham's writing, particularly Shine as the Light, which at that point in the where are we, early 2000s, thousands was still resonating around not only the army brass band world but the contesting world as well so uh, it was a little bit of a feeble attempt nick nick samuel and i sat in the office at editorial one day and we said should we try and emulate the, the peter graham kind of sound and we, it was just a little bit of fun to be honest and then a few months later i opened up this file and had a little look and listen i thought actually this isn't bad, uh, and it, it, it could be adjusted enough away from Shiner's The Light to, to, I mean, it was only the first 16 bars. Um, and then it, it suddenly became my life for three weeks, literally at this time, 20 years ago. And did you write the whole piece in that three weeks then? Yes, most of it on the train, would you believe? Right. But, um, you know, and it literally became night and day, my entire focus. And so a lot of it was was written on the, you know, the rickety train, the Reading to Waterloo line. Yeah. Wasn't quite steam trains back then, was it? I'll tell you what there was. <laughs> smoking carriages. Seriously. Really? Yep. Blimey. And, and uh, no aircon. Slam doors. Yeah. <laughs> There we go. A slight tangent there. Let's get us back on track. So, uh, pardon the pun. Glorifico Eternum. Now, I'm not fluent in Latin, but uh, can you talk us about the title and uh, how it came to you and what it means? So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a Latin expert, Matthew, um, although, you know, I have used a few Latin titles. But I was really inspired by Ken's writing and, and obviously, but also the fact that he'd used a Latin title with a piece called Christus Victor, it kind of resonated with me. It gave it that kind of grandeur that I liked. And also everlasting glory, mm, don't know. I mean, in, in retrospect, should have just called it Glorifico. And I did, I nearly did. 
but um you know it is what it is and uh like with everything else that any writer does once it's in print that's it you, you move on i'm sure many would describe this as your magnum opus is it fair to say this was the first piece that you'd written of this magnitude yes i'd never written anything of this length before some of the material comes back from university some of it was taken from other arrangements i'd started but it suddenly seemed to work as something that could just be put together written for the a band at yorkshire summer school of that year and that was it so let's have a look at the score now uh, and it's an energetic start perhaps um, obviously as it says allegro vivace con energia can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to achieve or the inspiration behind this introduction yeah very much had the shine as the light model like i said in mind there's no two ways about that um that that was it dad is also a writer arranger and he was my go-to point for anything still is really to to show him like you know where the rights and wrongs of of what i'm trying to do and he didn't know shine as the light really um so he, he kind of came at it more from a pure compositional point of view so the original of glorifico at the beginning had the euphonium dancing all over the place just like shine as the light okay and he's like why don't you try something a little less frenetic here and so he said, maybe just a short the rhythm. Um, and so that was his idea. Then it launches into more full of, uh, of bar five there. So if you, you can almost physically see the change from the euphonium part from bars one to four into five. Um, and it, I think that, you know, it gave it its originality from the word go. And I'm so glad that he recommended that change. Yeah, lots of vibrancy, lots of energy, minor key. Everything I wrote at that point was in the minor key. <laughs> Wasn't very good at writing in the major key. Everything had to be minor. So, yeah. So section A, and in the bars preceding section A, we have some unusual time uh, changes here, particularly uh, A going uh, into 10-8, which gives it a real dance-like feel. What was the reasoning and rationale behind that? Again, it just, a lot of my writing, a lot of my style, it comes under influence and it comes under really um, spontaneity. It literally felt like this is where I need to go next. Peter had, had done the 10-8 stuff in Shiner's Delight. Again, it was that inspiration to use a slightly unusual time signature to go into something, like you say, dance-like, uh, little interjections with the flugel, with some of the other um, solo instruments as well. Um, I've, I've always loved the sound of, of the middle of the band. Um, so always, I try and always write three parts in the middle of the band where I can. Always was thinking, try and work in threes. And this piece does that a lot. Letter B, 
Kulniks have this fanfare idea which modulates and takes us into C, perhaps a reprise, but a little bit more gentle from the beginning. Can you talk us through the modulation yep. and what you're achieving in this section? So as I look at it, letter B again is very much spontaneous. This is this is kind of coming from where where can the music go next? Texture wise, we've had a lot of sounds. We've had the full band play, the most well bits of section A. It needs it needs a bit of drama. It needs a, it needs a fanfare. Again, it came about through just uh, at heart. Really, I'm more of a percussionist than I am a brass player. I'm a, I'm a rhythmic person. I, I always think of rhythm. So this just came to me straight away. Goodness knows what it what the rhythm was, uh, and we you know I've managed to to get it get it down here, um, and it flips around as the score suggests from the the compound beats to the straight beats. But uh, this was this just came to me, and it seemed to work, and it, it literally never ever changed from the moment it was written to the moment it was published. It's exactly the same. And at Letter C, we have the first iteration of the tune, Now Thank We All Our God, as you mentioned earlier. Now, are there any references to that tune before it comes in these sections that <laughs> you're speaking out? Or was there no plan to even use this tune till you got there? Territorial Music School, when I say it, it's still on manuscript, no, no mention of Now Thank We All Our God. And as in the writing process, it just came to me. And uh, this was where it was where it headed. In retrospect, then, when it came to then after Territorial Music School, the piece was never designed to be used at Territorial Music School. I just happened to be still writing it at that point. And I said, I said to him, Steve, I'm working on something. Do you think we could look at it maybe after Wednesday, like maybe Thursday morning? Whatever. Yeah, yeah, fine. No problem. It's literally, that's all it ever was. By Friday lunchtime, he was talking to me about, like, can we use it? I'm thinking, oh my word, this is unbelievable. So yeah, so the piece took a few revisions, if you like, after being played. Uh, and this addition, pick up to bar ten, you'll see in the back row cornets, trombones, little statement, bum 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 bum. That was added after its debut performance. Excellent. Good to have these little facts. Nor is interesting to see how a piece comes together I guess often we'll see the final product but it's fascinating to pick a composer's brains on uh, how that product came to be So that takes us on to letter D. Again, something a little bit different in these the sections, letters D and E. Could you talk us through uh, this final section of perhaps the first movement of the suite? I opted then to go straight we're here, 4-4, four, four, but with lots of drive and drama, stab notes, creates nice effects, nothing terribly exciting or, or off the scale here in terms of originality. Um, yeah, just wanted to round off the tune, really.
So letter F, we transition into a very different style of music, uh, and there's something quite interesting happening in the timpani part through this uh, initial transition. Can you talk us through what that is, how it's achieved, and uh, where the inspiration for that came from? It's another Dr. Grahamism, I'm afraid. Both uh, this, the euphonium kicking off uh, in a kind of um, slight mystery of where we're, where we're going. Peter must have used this uh, as well, this idea, whether it was Shiner's Light or Renaissance, not sure, can't remember. But it's a great effect. Put upturn symbol, it's, it's, I mean, it's old now, right? Any professional percussions are out there going, yeah, I, well, you know, I did that back in the Stone Age, right? So, you know, it, it's not exactly groundbreaking stuff, but it's a great sound. It, it, and when you're pedaling it up and down, that gliss, it's um, it's really, it is very effective. And letter G, we have the melody, Someone Prayed For Me. Could you tell us a little bit about that melody, please? Yeah. Uh, so we'd used the, the song at TYC that year. Um, really resonated with everyone there. An amazing song. Um, I'll be honest, at that point in my life, things were, were really quite difficult. Um, personally, I was going through some struggles. Um, and actually, yeah, the song really worked for me as a, if you like, a, a testimony and of a, a basis of actually, you know, there's people out there who, who, who love and care for me and who want the very best for me and, and are praying. So that was, that was a really important part of it for me as well. And I knew that the song, it was a, a winner. <laughs> so, yeah. And when there's that personal um, affectation to the tune at, does that put more pressure on you as a writer to do it justice? It doesn't add pressure, no. Um, it didn't really make that much difference. It just sort of flowed for me. It gave me that extra push to, to use it well and to make that statement of the tune and of the... Of the obviously, you can't think of somebody probably without the words. I'm usually a music first person and a lyrics very much second. But in this... It's it's very much hand in hand. So no, it, good material will always inspire a good writer to to um, to lift it further. So when the tune comes in at letter I, it's a very different treatment to that you've had previously in letter H. How did you try and change it to build the music? Yeah, so that's again lifted straight from the original. Um, that we used at TYC, which is um, published in, a, in a, an American journal somewhere. Yeah, it was just using those the, the piano orchestration and making sure that there was that um, idea that we're lifting it somewhere so the euphonium part is busy, uh, high. There's lots going on, lots of big sounds, which suddenly, when you're orchestrating for brass band, you've got another uh, set of voices that you can use away from just the piano with the songster song. So it was it was great to be able to do that. I guess in some ways, people would say, you know, when you score for brass band and you elevate it to an orchestra, you've got that same new palette. And this was this, this was the thing. So it was using all the same energy, the power, the key change um, that, that goes in, and then you know, giving it that bigger treatment, and then coming out of it again.
So at section K, we enter the third part, uh, structurally, of this trilogy. Some interesting sounds from the tam-tam, and as you mentioned earlier, the flutter-tongue. But can you talk us a little bit through the inspiration for this movement and set the scene, uh, what you were trying to achieve in this closing movement? Uh, minor key again. Um, and written at university. So, um, yeah, what was I? 21? Um, so a few years before, the I'd given myself the enormous task of trying to write a piece of music, trying to sum up um, the first uh, chapter of Ephesians. And again, it was sketches that never really came off. But this was one of them. Uh, this idea with the flugel and the interjections behind it. Again, rhythmic. Um, that's rhythm is my, I'm always, you know, I'm always tapping and fiddling and yeah, I'm, I'm amazed I've been tapping the table here with all that 10-8 stuff, right? So, um, but yeah, that rhythmically driven, um, built up on the pyramid of one, three, five. I think I mentioned that in the school notes. Yeah, uh, some of the, say the, the trombones, cornets, doing that kind of stuff. So yeah, again, creating something a little bit, I, I'm also a, a bit of a, a bit like Peter, I guess. I, I, I do love the, the sort of um, South American kind of stuff and that, that um, uh, I like um, the, the, the richness of some of those sounds. And I wanted to sort of get some of that in there in that this last section in different ways. And this was one of them. we have some references particularly with the 10-8 sections back to the opening how important for you when writing this was the arc of the music and the synergy between the opening section and this closing section um right yeah uh, writing stuff to make sure it's coherent and make sure that it has some synergy was definitely something that was emerging for me as i mentioned i was more than happy to go back and try and get a little bit of snippet of "No, I think we all have got it. It's really important to do that. And other things like that was suddenly becoming more intrinsic in my compositional uh, experience and, 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 and development at that point. It still is. Uh, all these years on, you're always learning. And uh, yeah, and so it was, yeah, I needed to, I felt you're trying always to make something that's symmetrical in a way. So you want to have that, that, those ideas come back. And at letter O, as you mentioned, some of these Latin American inspirations, I would say letter O is perhaps one of the best examples for this. Would you say the same? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the most overt. The, the, the flugel before that with the little, uh, little um, appoggiatura kind of little uh, jazz almost influence there. That was a little taster, if you like, um, of what I felt was more sort of, jazz cuban kind of idea this was a uh, uh how'd you say it? mariachi trumpets kind of thing like very much that that ilk of, of writing 
I'd heard some of it um, again. I think it was Peter. He's, he takes a lot of credit for this piece. Really, it should it should be really his and adapted Dean Jones, shouldn't it? Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So uh, that was really resonating with me. I wanted something out there. Like that's that's. It's funny when you as you get older, you almost become. It's funny with experience. You'd think you'd be more confident. But in some ways, you you retreat slightly. I don't think I'd have the courage to do that now. It's really interesting. Like for me, it was all about yeah, vibrancy, yeah, energy, yeah. This is let's try this, let's do that. Uh, I don't know if Auntie Doris on the back row is going to like this or not, uh, or, or or you know, or the bandmaster that served for seventy five years, he might not like it either. But I don't know. Something about this piece has been a bit of a something for everyone. And this was a moment I just sort of let loose with. So at letter P, we have this almost sort of anthem-like uh, shout from the cornets. Can you talk us through this next section? And again, what's happening in the music here and perhaps your narrative? Um, so looking at the score here, Matthew, we've gone from the sort of mariachi-type trumpets at letter O. And again, it need, the music needed another lift. I'm thinking, goodness, I'm not sure where, where I can go here. I might have lifted as far as I can lift. So I went with just raising the, 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 the line with the tubers. It might be, yeah, go to the first inversion before P. So that helped set up back to the, basically in B flat speak, A minor by the look of it. This again, another snippet. I'd started an arrangement of Lord Rain in Me. Um, and yeah, uh, and that Lord Rain in Me arrangement has served two major works. It's the beginning of the last movement of Lord of All. Uh, the chorus I lifted out and put in here because I needed something which was really going to snap, like have a major kick. Because where do you go from that letter O, right? It was difficult. Letter Q, we have reference to the opening of the piece. Can you talk us about the direction that you now take the work in? Yeah, so this is a build-up of what we said earlier about that kind of idea of one, three, five, you know, pyramid of, of uh, tonic, third, fifth. And all the time the music is being raised, uh, broadened in that way. And also uh, width-wise it is. So we start off with the stabs from the remainder of the band that bar three of Q, just having three notes. Uh, so we go from one to three to five. So that takes us into letter R, where we have this repeated ostinato figure in the soprano and second cornets, along with a challenging, well, it looks challenging to part to me in the xylophone because I don't play it. Uh, but can you talk us through the way that you build um, and use that ostinato throughout this transitional section? Major inspiration at letter R of uh, Light Me section within Shine as a Light, where unusually the conductor points people in very alien to people, uh, it's certainly in our, our uh, Saoish and army world of playing what they want, when they want, almost. 
I, I chose a different route um, and, and wanted to recreate something of that, but within uh, keeping on the page. So that's where um, letter R comes from. So at letter S, we have on the score, it says the tune sent Columba in what might be described as an augmented fashion here. Can you talk us about some of the musical devices that you've used in section S? The whole idea of back row, the cornets and the horns kind of wallowing through the tune uh, was a was a strong feature of lots of writing and still is and, it, and, and, and works well. So then you're decorating it with your solo cornets and, and euphonium primarily. Um, I wanted also some some a little bit of um, stability within the rhythm to be in the trombone. So yeah, I'd, I'd see this as decorative with balance and, and, and the, if you like the majesty that this church tune deserves. Um, amazingly, again, this tune came to me, I believe we've been proofreading a, um, an arrangement of Norma Bearcroft's. It was sub subconsciously, it was somewhere. Wasn't ever the idea. One of my, one of the unsung heroes here at Staines Corps, um, during the last um, stages of, of me writing this, passed away. So it must be pretty much 20 years to the day since Jim Hopkin passed away. And at his celebration uh, service for his life, the words of Psalm 23 were read, which were his, were his favorite. And it felt like, okay, this is, this is now, all these symmetries and, and amazing coincidences are coming together. And I feel this piece needs to have a tribute to it, literally for Jim. Um, he was a quiet guy but uh, an unsung hero. And so the whole idea of me being inspired by literally proofreading St. Columbus somewhere, it was in my subconscious. Going to Jim's service of Thanksgiving, hearing Psalm 23, everything just seemed to be, again, melting together to create something, I guess, of some kind of significance. final section and it's a very very grand end to a grand piece do you want to talk us through uh, how you finished and brought everything together in this final yeah conclusion yeah interesting yeah so i went back to the kind of like me uh, idiomatic section that i alluded to earlier um the idea of going those sort of chords that, that um that i used there and also earlier in that section they kind of are quite dramatic. It's a minor third down from the tonic. It's called six. It works well. Um, minor key. Uh, it has that bit of drama about it. Nothing overtly, um, overtly technical. But then, as the as this section goes on, you'll see it thins out to the point where it's just bam, 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 right before the four four. Um, and to me, the, the, the interesting bit of this was starting off with lots of notes and gradually it tapers off and off and off and off. You'll see it within the solo coordinate part, um, probably most obviously. And uh, yeah, that was fun. 
to try and make that technically and aesthetically work to the point where the top half of the band are all in use. Dean, thank you so much for joining us uh, and giving us a real insight to this piece that I know has been used so many times, certainly in the context of music schools and is a really, really popular work. Uh, thank you for telling us a little bit of your insight into the piece, how it came to be, and uh, delving into the music and uh, the words associated with it there. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dean, for sharing your perspective on a piece that I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with, and if not, they will be now. For those interested, the musical extracts were taken from the ISB recording on Jubilee. Recently, we've had a lot of questions about Arid Island, and particularly how to visit for those looking for an exclusive getaway. It seems many are put off by the fact that the island is only accessible by blow-up dinghy on the first Friday of each month. Luckily, today's guest was able to make the journey successfully. Welcome to Arid Island. Today's guest is Bethany Williams. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for joining us on the Arid Island. Uh, we'll hear your choice of album shortly, but just before we do, a couple of questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So first of all, uh, I believe that you are the bandmaster at Govan uh, near Glasgow, um, Salvation Army Band there. How long have you been bandmaster for? Well, I would like to tell you the exact amount of time, but... Um... One, my brain isn't particularly good, but also it wasn't very clear cut because I kind of shared the job with our CEO at the time, who was Mark Bearcroft. I've probably been officially commissioned, I don't know, maybe a couple of years. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I started conducting the band in 2019, certainly. And I am known as Bandmaster Bethany Williams and not Bandmaster Williams because there will only ever be one of them. Um, so, yeah, it's probably been a few years. Um, but we've got a, a great band, you know, we've um, we've got enough players to cover all parts, although um, a few black back row cornets and some salt players would be, always be welcome if anyone's listening. Um, Govan's band's motto has always been the best for the highest, and while we may not be at the same standard we once were, I am so pleased that we continue to play some good music. Uh, we have a great fellowship within the band, and the members are very committed to using their musical talents to enhance worship and spread God's word both in Sunday meetings, which are viewed around the world, which can be quite scary, and in the local community. Fantastic. That's really exciting to hear. And we're in September now, so I guess the start of a new season 
for the band. What is something you're looking forward to this year with the band? Um, well, we're trying to think of something different to do for band weekends because banding is changing. Um, last year, or well, this year, but um, for the last season, we got together a group of players from a, a number of smaller core who maybe only have four or five players and getting together for a rehearsal on the Saturday afternoon and playing some really good old music that people enjoy as well as some new numbers um, was a great uplift really to a lot of people, um, including our own band. Um, so we're trying to think of something different. Somebody did um, suggest a band trek uh, I suggested we need to work on even just marching down Govan Road first before we venture onto a trek. But I don't know quite what we're going to do. So any ideas will be very much appreciated. Well, exciting times ahead, I'm sure. Now, I'd like to ask, what do you do as your profession? Well, I work in education. Um, I'm principal teacher of pastoral care at a high school just outside Glasgow. And I work with children aged 11 to 18. Um, my role is extremely diverse, but I basically deal with the holistic aspects of education. So supporting pupils academically, emotionally and behaviourally. And that can range from monitoring attendance and punctuality to managing mental health concerns and um, addressing behaviour issues in the classroom to assisting with university applications, all sorts. Um, I'm also responsible for the school's vocational education and the anti-bullying programs, uh, amongst other things, as well as devising and delivering the personal, social and health education curriculum, of which some of the topics should probably not be highlighted on this podcast. Uh, I also teach a little bit of music as well. Fantastic. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. And my final question before we get on to your album of choice is, what is the best thing about Glasgow? Well... Do you know, I, I'm going to get shot down by somebody for saying this, I know it, but I wasn't very pro-Glasgow growing up. I used to go with the kind of image that people have of it. But having been away from it for so long and having come back again, I really appreciate a large number of things. I appreciate the friendliness of people. You can go anywhere and somebody will talk to you. They will help you out. They'll be nice. Um, but also the architecture is absolutely stunning. The, the architecture in the centre of Glasgow is something to be seen. And the surrounding natural scenery, you know, you're, you're a moment away from beautiful mountains and hills and beautiful beach life. It really is something worth exploring. And uh, I never thought I would say that. Fantastic. A great advert there for the city. And that brings us on to the all-important question. If you were stranded on an island, a deserted and arid island, and you could take one album with you, what would that album be and why? The album I have selected is An Easter Tale by Boscombe Band. And I must confess to not knowing the album particularly well compared to others. Apologies to the band. But while there are many great pieces on it, some of which I will touch upon, it was... It was one track in particular that made my decision for me. Um, lockdown connected so many people in ways that we previously wouldn't have imagined. And I was asked to record a number of virtual performances, including from that sacred hill arranged by Dick Cromenhook with a group of 12 trombonists and a small rhythm section from around the world. 
And this was a challenging time for many. It was certainly a challenging time for my lip, I can tell you. I don't know how many takes I had to do. But these collaborations meant so much to people. And that track is on this album, albeit this time with a band accompaniment. Uh, Govan Core did a number of interviews during this time, and I was able to connect or reconnect with great musicians, some of whom also feature as composer or arranger on this album, including Dudley Bright with his powerful meditation Near the Cross based on Fanny Crosby's words, and Dorothy Gates and her arrangement of Don Thomas's contemporary song Anointing Fall on Me, which she simply entitled Anointing. Um, I feel the whole album is a beautiful, thought-provoking narrative of Holy Week and offers much to Christians during the most important time in the Christian calendar. Through careful consideration and accompanying words, it flows so naturally from beginning to end while still offering a contrast in styles. However, all that said, the track I'm referring to goes back, first of all, to my childhood at Govancore and the tune of Fuster. This tune was used as a frequent band song on their festival programmes, albeit to different words, but I have always loved it. Perhaps for nostalgic reasons, who knows? As a side note, talking about band songs, I recall Jim Williams telling me that he took the band singing off his programmes as the band would play an outstanding programme of music, all for people to come up to him afterwards and say that they'd enjoyed the band singing. I think that was a fairly common issue. In fact, it happened to Govan Band earlier this year. Anyway, Boston Band's performance of Reflections in Nature is what made me select this album. Actually, and no offence to the members of the band, it's not really their playing, but rather Howard's careful, sensitive interpretation of the music and joined with the consideration of Catherine Baird's words and the way he then manages as a conductor to convey that to the band, regardless of their ability, for them in turn to produce a cohesive, well-rounded musical, but more importantly, clearly meaningful, God-filled performance. Now, if one were not to know the words behind the composition, I am certain that they couldn't fail to be moved by Robert Redhead's powerful and emotional writing. I mean, who doesn't love the bass trombone at the end? However, it is clear to me that Howard studies the score so carefully in order to convey the message, while bringing out the beautiful moving harmonies and other key musical features, including elements of word painting. Robert's music and Catherine's words at the end of the piece, the final verse. But when the winds triumphantly swept from the open plain, the master surely heard the song, the Lord shall live again. What a message. That said, I'm not sure some bass trombone players feel like they'll ever live again by the end of the piece. So there we have it. My album to keep me going while stranded, which I have to say sounds blissful would be Boscom Band's An Easter Tale. Well, thank you so much, Bethany, for joining us. An excellent album choice there too. Thank you, Bethany, for your time and album choice. Enjoy your stay on Arid Island. Our expert dinghy captain will be there to ferry you off the island the first Friday of next month.
sparsely scored. Welcome to a new era in the sparsely scored universe. Congratulations again to Derek Kane, who took home the crown guessing our last sparsely scored episode. And congratulations also to Nicholas Brill, who took home the silver. Thank you to all of you who sent in your guesses. For those that had the answer on the tip of your tongue, here is the grand reveal. The excerpt was... Drumroll, please. The BT Langworthy March Regeneration. Now, don't worry, if you didn't get it, you'll be pleased to know that our new episode is slightly easier. We hope. As with before, we'll start off with one part, and each episode another line will be added. First person to guess and send us a direct message takes home the crown. Here's a first listen of the second cornet part. And once again. If you think you know, then let us know. Well, David, thank you once again for joining us in the Band Mastermind hot seat. Um, how terrified are you right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty terrified. You know, I feel I should be able to score some, but I'm fearful that I may not. I may, I may be a zero on this. So, yeah, I'm quite nervous about it. Well, zero isn't a bad score for Band Mastermind. So, <laughs> let's see. So, David Wright, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? Let's play. Your time starts now. <laughs> What is the name for the USA West music publication series? Pass. Okay. What is the first track on the Melbourne Staff Band CD to boldly go? Quintessence. Uh, It's a good guess, but not correct. What piece is number 485 in the festival series? (laughs) Uh, The Ambassadors. Not quite, but talking about Peter Graham, his work Blazon uses which tune by Handel? Yeah, pass. <laughs> okay, what was Kevin Norbury's last piece to be published in the festival series? I'm going to take. You're close, one away. Um, who was Melbourne staff bandmaster before Colin Woods in 1964 to 1969? I passed, I know. <laughs> Uh, what is the name of the album released by the USA Southern Territorial Band in 2016? Is it Songs of Hope? It's not, I'm afraid. What is the name of tune number one in the 2015 tune book? <laughs> uh, Abingdon. Uh, you're not far away, but not right. Who wrote the march in the firing line? Is it Brown Coles? It is, correct. Well done. And what was Eric Bull... Oh. We're out of time. (laughs) That brings us to the end of time. I'm afraid you are out of uh, seconds to answer. And that gives you a grand score of one, which isn't too bad for Band Mastermind. (laughs) Some tough questions there. Should we go through the answers? I'm sure some of which were on the tip of your tongue and for any listeners at home. So the name of the USA West music publication series is Ocean Brass. 
or the Ocean Brass series. The first track on To Boldly Go is Flashpoint by Martin Cordner. Ooh. Piece 485 in the Festival series is A Pastoral Symphony. And the tune by Handel used in Blazon is Theodora. And the last of Kevin Norbury's pieces to be published in the Festival series was the Proclaimers Festival Series Ooh. 571. The Melbourne Staff Bandmaster before Conan Woods was Charles Scott. The name of the USA Southern Territorial Band's album from 2016's War and Peace. And name of the tune, which is number one in the 2015 tune book, is All Stone. Well, in all seriousness, David, thank you so much for giving up your time to join us. And thank you for sharing a little bit of an insight into your life, your faith and your music making. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for in this episode. But don't fret, the next episode is only a month away. In the meantime, why not catch up on any episodes you've missed? Or be sure to follow us on social media to keep up with the latest and share your thoughts on the podcast. Before we do disperse, time for a few thanks. Thank you to our excellent trio of guests, David, Dean and Bethany, for giving your time, talent and good humour. As always, much appreciated. Thank you to our producer, Simon Gash, for the surgical splicing and stitching to create a coherent and IB65 rated waterproof episode. Thank you to the musicians who recorded the parts for Sparsely Scored. Thank you to Wobplay for hosting this episode and another scintillating playlist to complement it, much like a fine bottle of schlur. And finally, last but not least, you know the drill. It's a thanks to you for listening. See you next time, goodbye and God bless. Thank you.